Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who you really are. All right, listeners, I'm telling y'all, y'all are about to have a time of transformation. It's an absolute honor. Who our guest is today, we have Dr. Kirk Thompson, and Dr. Thompson is a board-certified psychotherapist. He is also the founder of the Center for Being Known. He and his wife, Phyllis, and she has her LCSW. They both live outside of Washington, D.C., and they have two adult children. Kurt's books, and if those of you watch on YouTube, this is one of them, Anatomy of the Soul, and Dr. Thompson's other book is The Soul of Shame. Excellent, excellent resources for everybody listening. Both of those books explore how neuroscience relates to the ways we experience relationships, deep emotions like shame and joy, and especially our own stories, and how we can process our longings and desire to spiritual connection with God and each other to live more fully integrated and connected lives. So that man I just described, Dr. Kurt Thompson, is here with us. So Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for being a part of Flip Your Lid. Mm, well, Kim, it's a pleasure to be here, and please call me Kurt, and I'm uh, eager to spend time with you and with your listeners. It's a joy and a, an honor to be with you. Thanks so much. Well, I appreciate that. I heard you on Ian Crowen's podcast, Typology, mm-hmm. and those mm-hmm. of you who are into the Enneagram, you know that he, Ian Crowen, and Suzanne Stabile wrote The Road Back to You, uh, a book that helps us explore the Enneagram as a spiritual tool, and Kirk was on there, and I, I got to tell you, Kirk, your neuroscience and Enneagram knowledge impressed me. I, I'm a neuro nerd. I love all that as a psychotherapist, mm. but it was your compassion that was like, I've got to find this man. I've got to see if he'll mm. hang out with me because this system that we're both in, a, a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist, can break that compassion. Hmm. And for yours to just bleed out so beautifully and be so vulnerable and so intellectual about neuroscience, I, I tracked you down. Oh, well, I, I'm uh, pleased to have been tracked. <laughs> That's awesome. Pleased That's to have been tracked. That's great. <laughs> so let's start with this. Tell us a little bit, if you're, if you're open to, of what in your life flipped your lid that caused you to go in this journey and learn how to reconnect to who God says you are? Hmm. You know, Kim, I uh, tell people that I, I think that my life has been this sequence of moments in which through a number of different people and events, God has been coming to find me. Mm. Um, I mean, nobody grows up in a perfect home, and some right. of those homes are, as you know, far more imperfect than others. Right. Uh, I think I've was found in my family, albeit pretty imperfectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, he found me in my evangelical Quaker church in right. which I was reared. He found me at that church camp experience where I met Jesus, I think, for the first time when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Um, he's met me in my uh, spiritual mentors. He's met me in my marriage. He's met me in our having kids. And he's come to find me in these different places. And of course, sometimes being found, um, you know, there are parts of me that are that, that God finds that I'm not really sure that I want him to find. 
Right, right. I, I, and, you know, I mean, shame can do this to us, as you know, and as, mm-hmm. you, as, you, as you teach and talk about that uh, at the same time that I want to be found, uh, I'm also afraid to be found. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid to reveal the part of me that I hope beyond hope that if I were to reveal it, I would hope that you would not leave the room. That's right. And, th- and I hope that you wouldn't stay in the room and, you know, humiliate me because of what you see. Uh, so I, I, I long for you to be in the room and stay in the room. And at the same time, I'm terrified that like when I reveal like you will leave the room and you'll go right. tell all your friends that don't ever go right. in that room where that dude, like that Shrinko is. Right, right, absolutely. Um, and so I, I think what, you know, to answer your question, what has flipped my lid? What what really turned me? I, I think, uh, you know, as, as, even as I think about the writing of when I wrote The Soul of Shame, that, without really being aware of it at the time, only since then, have I been aware that the writing of that book in some respects was an expression of lots of things in my own life that were part of the journey of that shame being revealed and cleaned mm-hmm. and healed and recommissioned over in, in many, many different moments. And I would say that, uh, you know, I, I, I met Jesus when I was 13 and almost immediately entered into a waxing and waning existential crisis that for me probably lasted the better part of 20 years. Right. That included even my time heading into medical school and a lot of uncertainty about what I sh- whether I should even be there, whether I should then what to do once you're there and being found by psychiatry, I think. And then in recent years, um, you know, with the emergence of interpersonal neurobiology, mm-hmm. um, feeling like God has come once again and um, uh, I, I think given me an opportunity to find language. How do, we, how do we find language in the world of neuroscience that helps us make even more sense of the world in which we're living? And that world that we believe is told most plainly and powerfully through the story of the gospel Right. The story of the biblical narrative mm. tells us the story, but sometimes we need help in the mechanics of how we tell that story. We need help in understanding what's actually taking place here mm-hmm. in order for us to live effectively. I, I can ride my bicycle. I can know how to ride a bicycle, but if my bicycle breaks, but the chain comes off, it's helpful for me to have some sense about what are the mechanics to help me put the chain back mm. on. It's a great way of putting it. And so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I'm, I'm, um, I, I think that, um, in the last 15 to 16 years, it has been a real privilege and a humbling honor to um, work to bring together, to integrate uh, this language of neuroscience into the story of the gospel. And I, when people ask me, what do I do? I say, well, I think my job is to preach the gospel in the language of neuroscience. I think that's what I do. Mm. And part of how we do that is to help people tell their stories more truly. Right. And evil will want to use shame as a way to tell our stories poorly or falsely. Mm-hmm. And in the process, disintegrate our brain circuitry, quite literally, disconnect our prefrontal mm-hmm. cortices from our brainstem right. and so forth and so on. And so as we respond to the gospel, we see the beauty of how that creates the opportunity for our brains to be renewed, for our minds to be transformed, and for us to be uh, released and liberated to be the agents of creating outposts of beauty and goodness in the world 
mm. these works that have been prepared for us before the foundation of the world by God to join him in creating. Yeah, I think what what you what I think you're doing so beautifully intellectually is, you know, like studying interpersonal biology and 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 knowing I know you know Dr. Dan Siegel who I named this podcast Flip Your Lid after helping me understand his way he explained Flip Your Lid and helped me understand prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. and cortex and trauma and all that. Yeah. And but the way you're explaining it and bringing in the Bible which a lot of people honestly who are in the science world medically and explaining all this don't have the core belief in you and I do in Christ. Mm-hmm. And so for you to take the neuroscience and apply it to what happened in the Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. what's happened to us since, mm-hmm. I, I don't think people can hear it enough. So will you talk a little bit about the original sin and how that ties into neuroscience? Right. Well, I think the first thing for us to say uh, is to acknowledge that we live in a world in which we give science a lot of authority to Mm. dictate things for us. And uh, there's a well-known philosopher of science by the name of Michael Polanyi who made the famous comment, there's no such thing as science, there are only scientists. (laughs) Really, what it means is that, you know, you know, science in and of itself, like it's, it doesn't have a mouthpiece. It, it doesn't, it doesn't speak for itself. It is human beings who mm. decide what science is and what certain things mean and so forth and so on. And why that is important is because we, when science emerged, it emerged in the context of Christendom. It emerged in the context mm. of Christianity because it was Christianity that made science possible. Right. And so it was understood that science was a subset of God's kingdom. It was understood that when we are when that when Newton is studying gravity, he's of course assuming that this is gravity that belongs in the world that God has made. Right. Science in and of itself was not in a position to have the authority to dictate things about God. Right. God was dictating things about science. Mm-hmm. But we have moved into a very different world now in which we give science a lot of authority, including the authority of telling us what we can know and how we can know it. And so consequently, we have to always be aware that the science that we talk about, the neuroscience in our case that we talk about, is always contained within a story. Mm. Science doesn't just exist kind of like neutrally in the world. It exists within the context of the story that we tell. And if you live in the modernist version of the world, that's a version of a story in which we say, first of all, there is no God. There might have been a Big Bang beginning. The end is going to be the big freeze when all of the power gradients, you know, kind of like level out and there won't be any more electrical magnetic changes. Right. And like, we're just dust in the wind. That's one story. Mm-hmm. And that story, it's not very exciting. It's pretty boring. Not much to write home about. But in the biblical narrative... In that story, we come to understand the science of lots of things in very powerful, exciting ways. And that's what's so important about shame being understood in the context of the story of the Genesis narrative. Mm -hmm. You can 
talk about shame from a clinical or from a neuroscience standpoint, from what it does in the brain and what it does in the body, what it does between people, we can measure some of those things. We can see what people do. But like we like to say, first we, in the body, first we sense, and then we make sense of what we sense. Mm. And we're hmm. doing this all the time. It's bottom to top, right hemisphere to left hemisphere. The left hemisphere is eventually going to make sense of what the right hemisphere is sensing. Right. And when it does so, the sense that the people were making who wrote the original scriptures, the sense that they were making was that this isn't just a moment in which Eve and Adam feel bad about themselves. No, this is a moment that in fact is telling us something important about the world and about the way we as human beings operate. And so what we're learning is that shame shows up in the Genesis text before Genesis 3 in the sense that we are prepared for it. And the man and his wife were naked and unashamed. Mm -hmm. You know, the writer of Genesis is a brilliant writer, just as a literature piece, right? And that writer sets us up and says like, look, the first couple were on the brink of creativity, on the brink of new creation. Mm -hmm. And for creation to take place, you need three things. You need differentiation. I need different things to make up a beautiful thing. To make a beautiful meal, I don't just want mashed potatoes. Right. I got to have lots of other things with that. I need differentiation. So you've got male and female. You need vulnerability. Mm. In order for you and me together to create something, it requires my acknowledging that I actually need mm -hmm, that's good. you. Mm -hmm. We need each other. I am a vulnerable person. It's not like, well, am I going to be vulnerable today? Well, of course I'm vulnerable because I got to put clothes on. Right. And the third thing is to be creative in its most powerful form. I need to do that work of differentiation and vulnerability in the absence of shame. Mm. And so that shame is not just something that happens in the Garden of Eden that is the consequence of their disobedience. I mean, it is that. But it is also something that emerges, we would say, even before any fruit gets eaten in the context of the conversation between the serpent and the woman, mm -hmm. when he's basically saying, your father isn't really that interested in you. Yep. Because if he were, he would want you to have everything that he has, but yep. he doesn't really want you to have that. What kind of a dad would not want you to play with his things? Right. Oh, I guess your dad doesn't really love you as much. Of course, the Genesis mm -hmm. writer doesn't tell us all these things because it's such a brilliant piece of literature. And there is this sense in which shame is already at work in such a way that the taking of the fruit is a way to cope with the shame that's already starting to kind of land its foothold for her and for Adam. And so, therefore, we see that this event that happens in Genesis 3 and then its extension into the violence of murder in Genesis 4 is really a con. I mean, this is who we are as human beings. Mm. And... In the middle of this, we can apply all the mechanics of shame that we know about how it works within my brain and between me and other people and what it does in cultures and so forth and so on. But one of the things that we fail to see, but that the writer implies, is that shame is not just a thing that happens to happen to us. It is not just a way in which I feel bad when I do wrong things. Mm -hmm. It is evil's weapon in its attempt to prevent us from creating hmm. as God creates. Hmm. 
we are, as God's image bearers, we aren't just God's image bearers in terms of like, I'm a sentient being, I'm smart, I'm conscious, I'm aware of what I'm aware of. All those things are true, but to fully, to live fully into our image bearing nature as God's creatures is to create as God, no other animal create. Beavers, they build houses, spiders make webs. Right. Like that's all true. Right. Spiders aren't making software. <laughs> right. And they're not, they're not like building the kinds of houses that we build. They're not, they're not, they're, they're not writing Tchaikovsky. Mm-hmm. And this sense of creating out of our fullness, out of our vulnerability, in our differentiation, all that creativity is anathema to evil. Mm-hmm. And it wants no part of it. It wants to devour it. And one of the things that shame does is that it shears off our capacity to create beauty in our relationships as much as in any other material realm of the world. And if, you know, as as we like to say, look, uh, no one in the world ever purely self-identifies about anything. Mm. No one ever self-identifies. Now, it doesn't mean I don't have agency to decide what I want to do, but the things that I'm deciding are always decided in the context of a community, in the context of a community that is giving me information and telling me who I am. Right. And so we also have to decide in what story do we believe we are living such that we can understand shame and what it's doing in that context. And so if we're not going to consider the biblical story, not just Genesis, but also the Gospels. If right. we're not going to consider that as the story that we're living in, then unfortunately, we're kind of stuck with shame, and we're going to have to kind of put up with it and find ways to cope with it. But we don't really have any story that's going to tell us, at the end of the day, shame will be completely and utterly resolved. Hmm. You will be utterly healed. Right. The new heaven and the new earth is coming. Hmm. And you will be transformed. And what we are doing now is that we are practicing for what's coming. Right. In order to get ready for it. Yeah. Can you give them an example of us practicing? Yes. So in John 21, Jesus has a confrontation with Jesus on the beach after the resurrection. And he asks Peter the question, do you love me? And he asks him three times. And for all we know, he might've asked him 33 times. But right. the point is that Jesus is really working to remind Peter that no amount of shame that he still carries with him, no residue that's left over from what Peter did to Jesus six weeks earlier, no amount of residue is Jesus going to lie hidden, is going to allow to lie hidden under a rock. Mm-hmm. He's coming for that. Right. And so Peter is going to have to necessarily practice being loved by Jesus in that moment. He's going to have to sit and have Jesus come after him in front of everybody else. Right. We run what we in our practice call confessional communities, otherwise known as group therapy. Right. I love it. We run these confessional communities, and there are many, many opportunities week in and week out in which any number of people are going to have that same kind of experience that Peter had with Jesus in the sense that somebody's going to tell their story. They're going to tell the story about what happened to them this past week in their marriage or with their adult parents. I guess all their parents would be adults, parents, and or with their children or or with their boss or whatever, mm-hmm. or the longstanding history that they have with the sexual abuse that took 
place right. with, you know, when they were, you know, in their teenage years, all these kinds of things. And when they do, as they tell their stories, they will necessarily in that very time and space access their felt sense of shame. Mm -hmm. They're going to feel it in their body. And we're going to ask them, where are you feeling that? Right. And when someone else in the group is going to be looking at them and speaking with them, we're going to ask Jill to look at Steve and say, Jill, I just want you to take in what Steve's saying to you. Uh, tell me what you see on Steve's face. What do you hear in his voice? And what do you hear in Sarah's voice, who's also speaking to you? I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to just take that in, and then I want you to open your eyes, and I want you to look at them and take this in. What do you feel? And they might, and she might say, Jill might say, I feel two things. I feel, like, overwhelmed with love, and I'm also worried. Yeah. I'm worried that I'm not going to be able mm -hmm. to hang on to this. And we will say, you're right. It will be hard to hang on to this. Mm -hmm. And so when you go home tonight, I want you to practice again, taking in, ingesting, digesting, metabolizing mm -hmm. what has happened here in this room. And next week when you come back, we're going to hear you talk about what it was like for you to practice this seven days, every day for the next seven days. Because that kind of practice of taking in someone literally re like receiving people's love for us in the very face of our having named something that is debilitatingly shaming for us right. is not just an experience that I have. It is an experience that is literally transforming the neural networks in my brain. Mm -hmm. It is an experience though, that because neuroplasticity doesn't just happen once and that's done, it must be practiced. Absolutely. I'm now going to practice this over and over and over again. And in this way, I physically, we like to say things are not ultimately real for human beings until they experience them in their bodies. Mm -hmm. right. And if I'm practicing that, it's a lot more easy for me to imagine then when I read about Jesus and blind Bartimaeus, it's a lot easier for me to picture Jesus doing this because I'm having this experience with Steve and Sarah in this real-time space. Yeah, it's so powerful. You know, so many of us are publicly shamed within families, schools, football field, within teams. And so if we're publicly shamed, a lot of us have to be publicly healed. Right. That's the power of the group therapy. And the depth of our relationship is based on how much we can receive. You know, you put your finger on that. And I, I'm, um, you know, obviously we're, we are living in, a time that is, I mean, I'm 58, I, and I'm, you know, I, I, I haven't lived in a time like this before in our country's right. history. Right. And there's lots of fracture and there's lots of enmity and there's lots of people being angry at their neighbors and, or at least we think we are. <laughs> and uh, that whole sense of like, well, how easy is it for, my, for me to love my neighbor? It's a good question. Right. And we like to say, we can't give what we don't have. I can't love my neighbor if I have not yet first received it from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would have to say that in the last six months, in particular, it's become really clear to me that, like, we really struggle to love one another, but we struggle even more to receive love. Yes, we do. 
it's very hard for us to allow ourselves to receive it for some of the reasons that we were saying earlier, that the very part of me that most longs to be loved mm-hmm. also is most frightened that my shame will be discovered. And so at the same time that I'm delighted that you're coming to find me, there is the part of me that is ready at a moment's notice to put the wall up to say, oh, you can come that far, but not quite that far. Right, that's right. Yeah, I think the two main areas I see with anybody, despite the level of, of childhood trauma, adult trauma, race, gender, anything, is fear of rejection and mm-hmm. shame on the fact they have emotional needs. Mm-hmm. And that we do so many things, behaviorally, strategies, coping mechanisms, to cover both of those things up. Mm-hmm. And that vulnerability you brought up earlier, be exposing that, being naked in that, we have to have that before there can be a rebirth. And if we mm-hmm. spend all our time behaviorally covering it, then we mm-hmm. never really get to see who we really are in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right, Kim. And I, I'm... I'm struck by you were naming any number of those different categories that we think about ourselves in. We think about Mm -hmm. the category of sexuality. We think about the category of politics. We think about the category of this and of that and so forth and so on. These become these these siloed categories Mm -hmm. in which we, in our mind, we consider, oh, I'm fractured in that way and I'm fractured in that way and so forth and so on without, and so, and so we end up defining ourselves according to those things as well. Again, it's that mm-hmm. notion of I'm going to tell my story, right? paying a lot of attention to where my wounds are hiding out. Right. And it's not until we have the opportunity to be in the presence of relationships where in which we can be known in those vulnerable places mm. that we can begin to recognize, A, I don't have to carry the burden of self-identifying. Right. I have people who love me who want to help me figure that out together. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the power of the confessional, the group therapy. You know, it's and yeah. it's really, it's the power of 12-step programs. Sure. That not always sure. you get to see within the church. Right. And right. that when I got sober 25 years ago, the very things that other people would shame me about, people in AA said, yeah, that just means you belong here. Right. You're right. <laughs> right. Right. They said, tell the story again. It's funny. Like they had a different response. Right. And that I would love to see that become more and more evident in the church where that we are really embracing people no matter what their shame story is, because that's why God sent his son is for our shame story. So right. it doesn't become our right. whole story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ken, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Can you talk more about, you do such a good job in your book talking about being known versus knowing. Well, as I was hinting at earlier, we mm-hmm. put a premium on knowing things. Right. And, you know, with the enlightenment, right, the last four to 500 years, we are pretty sure of ourselves as human beings, especially in the West, that we know that we know that we know things. Now, interestingly right. enough, it didn't require the enlightenment for this to become an important thing. Uh, there was a thing called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Even from right. the very beginning, it was really important that we know things. Right. Because ultimately, if I know enough, then I don't need you. And I don't need to worry about being vulnerable because Mm. if I know things, I don't need to need somebody else. Right. 
And so it's important to recognize, though, that, you know, so, so first of all, we live in a world where knowing is real important. Paul writes eloquently in the eighth chapter, second and third verse to 1 Corinthians, there are those who believe that they know, who do not know as they ought. Mm. But the person who loves God is known by God. And I think it's striking that Paul, like, obviously differentiates between these two ways of being in the world. What is it like for me to know things? And he's talking about a group of people who are confident about what they know about food served to idols and all the all these other kinds of things. That these Christians who know that they know that they know, and therefore they don't need to be vulnerable. Mm. But to be known by someone else mm-hmm. uh, means that I'm actually going to submit myself to a process in which I can actually learn things and discover things about myself but not until I see them in your eyes. Right. So I, I tell people it's kind of like this. Um, you know, if you're the parent of a third grade child and at the end of the day, you, the parent, get a phone call from the child's teacher saying, you know, Kurt um, ran into some trouble today and I just want to let you know what that was all about. Yeah. And he'll, when he gets home, um, you might want to ask him about it. So uh, I now, as the parent, I know the facts on the ground. I know what Kurt did. I know how he did it. I know what happened. I, like, I, I know everything there is to know about the facts, right? right? And we often kind of think about God this way and think about like, so, each other this way. They're like, well, God already knows. God knows mm-hmm. everything. So God knows. So I don't have to tell him. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have to tell him. But as a parent, what I really long for is for my child and me to have a relational engagement and the facts on the ground are really just the stuff that has happened. That's going to broker the relationship, right? It's going to make the relationship possible. I want my child to have the experience of being known by me. Now that for my child, when he walks in the door, when Kurt walks in the door and I say, Hey, so how was school today? Mm -hmm. You know, Kurt might not want to tell me, what happened? If I say, hey, Kurt, your teacher, you know, called and said that you had a bit of a rough go today. I'd, I'd love to, to hear you tell me about it. Right. And in that way, we transform facts that we can know into a relationship in which we are known. Mm. And here's something, and 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 this this is the sense, right? Because if I'm if I'm that third grader walking home with this thing in my head that I don't really want to tell my parents, I don't want to talk about my parents because it feels bad. Right. What's really important is that that shame that I carry is going to be transformed by my being known by my parent, mm-hmm. by my telling my story, and to discover that the response that I'm getting from them is actually quite different than what I expected. Yeah. And so what's really crucial for us is to recognize that knowing things is not unimportant. Like if I don't know things, I can't change my flat tire. Right. I can't read the numbers on the nuclear reactor that is running the power for this part of the state. Like I, I like we have to know things, hmm. but knowing things is always done in the service of being known. Wow. That's good. We know things in such a way that it's always done in the service of being known. 
ultimately, like, I want to know things. Why do I want to make sure that the nuclear reactor is working? Well, 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 so it doesn't kill people. Well, of course. But why? Because, no, because we're giving power to families. And, and, and why are you doing that? So that they can live their lives. And why are they doing that? Because ultimately, this is about relationships. Mm. Ultimately, we have a power company that's helping husbands and wives be known by each other. Mm-hmm. And those children to be known by their parents in order for them then to also go on to create the next new artifact of beauty that God has prepared mm. for them before the foundation of the world. Wow. Wow. And so to be known is to be invited into this grand story of creativity and beauty. Yeah, that's so powerful. And such a good distinction. And I, I think that it reminds me of Colossians 3.3 3, that you know, you know, through death, through our death of who we're not really are, right? That through that, that then we are hidden in Christ with God instead of mm-hmm. hiding. Mm-hmm. You know, through religion, hiding from Christ, hiding who we are, right? Is this such a right. different different right. way of looking at it of of knowing versus being known, being invited in to a beautiful, creative, vulnerable story. You know, uh, Kim, you just said that I have never, that has never struck me like it just, like like you Mm. opened that up right now, that whole notion of that, the difference. That's that, gosh, I just, I mean, like, wow, that's really powerful. This notion of like, our life is hidden with, hidden with, and that we are not hiding from. That's right. Big difference. That's just uh, mm. that's that's I I I just I man I, I I love that and and it's so you're you're right I I I'm I've not thought about that verse in light of shame and what shame tends to want to have me hide mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. Jesus right just like they did in the Garden God. of Eden they they hid yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah. so that's a, yeah it's it just a, it's it's just a powerful thing I I uh, I'm I'm. I'm I'm really struck by this notion that if we are hidden in that way with someone, mm-hmm. in in a certain way, like when when you are with your clients and you're saying, "Look, um, you can hide your story with me," right? It's true. You know, yeah. your story can be hidden with me, but That's you're right. with me, and That's right. we can hide this with God. Mm-hmm. And in these group in the group work, we're going to hide our story within this. It's going to be hidden with someone. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's I'm not hiding from anybody. That's right. But hidden in a sense of protected, mm-hmm. honored, you know, its dignity maintained, even in its brokenness right. and transformation. Right. And the death that's in that scripture is the death of the shame. Yes. Right. We yes. think death right of on. self means personality, essence, uniqueness, and it's really the shame, blame, and rejection have to die. Right. Right. For right. us to be able to be hidden with Christ. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. See, you and I need Dang. to hang out more. You, well, and, and you need to write a book about that. Just to, to get, to, it could be like a small six-chapter book, and you just unpack that. It'll be beautiful. All right. As long as you do the forward and you do whatever <laughs> and <laughs> you put your picture on the front, I'm good with that. <laughs> That's the greatest. So I, I want to segue into because you know, we're talking about the shame and the connection, right? And that how beautiful connection is and being known, how healing all that is, and go into a little bit because your book talks about attachment styles, which mm-hmm. I absolutely love. And mm-hmm. just if you want to touch on how our attachment style 
to our parents influence our attachment to God, to each other, etc. Yeah. So we like to talk about this notion that attachment is this process, this interpersonal process, wherein which technically, as many of your listeners may be familiar with, this that the that the newborn, the infant, it's the process, this interpersonal process, whereby which the immature infant brain utilizes the mature adult brain to help organize itself. So mm. baby comes into the world with a certain temperament. And of course, as we like to say, no two siblings ever grow up in the same house. Very because true. you've got a different temperament. And so parents are going to engage different people very differently. And even though they think they have the same parenting rules and regulations for everybody, not everybody's going to respond in the same way. So we're going to have different mm -hmm. experiences here. Mm -hmm. So temperament comes into the world and the parents are going to respond to that temperament in a particular way. Hmm. And the baby is then going to respond to the temperament, to, to, to the response of the parents. And that's going to create this sense of how that baby is going to use that relationship to regulate their own emotional responses in the world. And there are different attachment styles. There are, there's a secure pattern. There are two or three insecure patterns that we like mm -hmm. to talk about. And I think, you know, in kind of, in a, in a succinct way, we would, we would say that insecure attachment is really, uh, it really references different forms in which we misregulate our emotions. We misregulate our emotion. We either over-control it in, you know, an insecure, avoidant form of attachment. We, over, we, we recognize that emotion really isn't going to do anything for us because maybe we grew up in a relationship where emotion doesn't really play much of a role. My parents don't pay much of attention to it. I learned that my emotion isn't getting me anywhere, hmm. and so I stopped using it. I use my smarts, I use my intelligence, I use all kinds of other things. It doesn't mean that emotion is not in play. It doesn't mean that emotion is not actively moving in and about our, my, my life and my relationships. I'm just simply not paying attention to it or using it. Hmm. I can still be very deeply affected by it. Right. I'm just cut off from it. Or we can have another style in which emotion is kind of like all over the place. And that anxious style in which like every given moment, I'm like wondering, like, are you going to stay or are you going to go? And like, if you're going to, and if you're going to come, are you going to come too close? And I'm kind of like over emotionally driven right. in a sense. That's oversimplifying things. And then we can have these disorganized forms that are part of traumatic events, traumatic lifestyles mm -hmm. that we grew up with. Mm -hmm. And the point being that uh, I don't learn as a child in these insecure forms, I don't learn as a child how to effectively use relationships. And by use, I don't mean in some kind of exploitative way, but how do I effectively use the relationships in ways that I was made to use them, that we were all made to use them to help myself co-regulate, to help myself regulate mm -hmm. my emotional states mm -hmm. when I'm in distress right, or when I'm not in distress. And we develop these patterns, these insecure uh, attachment patterns as coping strategies that then extend into all kinds of other relationships in the world. And eventually, you see, my brain was made to live and flourish in a secure attachment. Mm -hmm. So if you go for a long run mm -hmm. and you're, you know, it's going to be a seven mile run 
and you're going out three and a half miles and back three and a half miles. And, right. you know, once you make your turn, you come back and you're three miles from home and you like somehow stumble and twist your ankle very badly. Do, are you watching me on the weekends? Like you're okay. telling my story. Are you, are you, I mean, I'm glad if you're stalking me, that's cool, but. <laughs> yeah. So you twist your ankle really badly, but you still got to get home. Right. And so you limp home. And, you know, limping home is a way to get home. And it's the best, you know, it's best that you can do with your sore ankle. But, you know, the next morning you wake up and you discover not only is your ankle sore, but the hip on the other side Mm -hmm. of your body is also sore. And the reason it's sore is because you were having to do something to cope with your injury that the body is not made to do. Mm. But like... You can do it because you're effective and like because you're a runner, like you're going to get her done and you're going to get home, albeit if you're limping. Insecure attachment is kind of like that. Like we can get it done, but Mm. at some point we get tired of the pain in my left hip because of the, Mm. you know, the twisting that I had in my right ankle. Wow. And so I want to figure out like, wait a minute, like I'm tired of walking around in all this pain. I want to find what's the most helpful way to walk or the most helpful way to run. And this is when we enter into some kind of relationship, whether it's a spiritual direction relationship or we meet Jesus or it's psychotherapy or a pastoral care relationship or a very, very close friendship or with uh, multiple friendships that give us the opportunity to encounter relationships that respond to our emotional states very differently than our parents did. Mm. Now, of course, and, and this is a beautiful thing, because this is a this is a wonderful thing to encounter healthy relationships, but as you know, we both know, at first glance, it might not feel all that comfortable. Mm-hmm. If I've been used to walking a certain way all my life, and now I have to retrain how to walk, and the physical therapist says, "No, I want you to get on the treadmill, and I just want you to walk very slowly, just like this," and you're like, "I don't know how to do this. Mm-hmm. This feels uncomfortable for me because I've been walking with a limp for so long, and now my hip is." displaced and and then to walk normally is like it's 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 uncomfortable yes so i love the uh the version of jesus encounter with the rich young ruler that we read about in the gospel of mark it's the only gospel version where after jesus invites him and says like well have you kept the commandments all of them i have Mm. And he said, you know, there's one thing that you lack, which is really interesting because the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Mm-hmm. What must I do? This is a guy who knows how to work hard. This is a guy who lives in a world in which the story that he believes is that You only get good things if you work your tail off for them. You only get good things if you work perfectly. If you can be in charge of all the variables and you know that you know that you know and you work really hard, then you inherit things, which is really interesting, right? Because Mm -hmm. in that day, you didn't have to do anything to inherit your father's wealth. You were just his son. Right. You don't have to do anything. But his question belies the story that he believes he's living in. What must I do to inherit? And Jesus is like, 
Well, have you done this? Yeah. Oh, well, there's one thing that you haven't done, and that's to stop doing what you're doing. This notion of, I don't want you to work to receive me. You don't have to work to get me to love you. You like, there's no answer for your question. What must you do? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and sell everything you have because the money is not the problem. Your wealth is not the problem. Your problem is that you don't know. You don't know how to not work for love. Wow. Wow. And Mark's version says this. And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, there's one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have. And what's so striking about this, to me, when I read this, like, oh my gosh, all that the lawyer could hear were Jesus' words, and he missed his look of love. He could not bear it. He could not tolerate being loved in this way. This is not the way the world works. This is not right. how one attaches oneself. This is not how one regulates. I don't. Mm. And he walked away sad. Yeah. And so Jesus is waiting for all of us with that look of love. Mm. But it's important for us to recognize that, again, it gets back to that notion that the very thing that I want, what the what like the the lawyer was looking for the right thing, and he was looking for it in the right place. Right, he was looking to be loved, mm -hmm. but he was coming with a grid that said, in order to be loved, it has to meet these requirements. It has to come through this set of mm -hmm. like ways, th this attachment pattern. And when Jesus' attachment offering to him showed up, it was too unsettling for him. And so it's like this for a lot of us. It's, it, you know, when, you know, I mean, you know this, when your patients, when, when your clients come for psychotherapy, they're there because symptomatically they've crossed the threshold that they can't tolerate their life anymore as it is. And so they come in and they say, Kim, I'm here because I have this or I have that or this has happened to me mm -hmm. and so forth and so on. And you, with your compassion, you invite them into the process and they get three steps into the pool and they're like, holy cow, I can't go into this any deeper. Right. Because as it turns out, the very thing that you are offering in this possibility for secure attachment, this earned secure mm -hmm. attachment they're going to have with you, mm -hmm. it scares the living daylights out of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's so powerful and so well said, you know, especially like the running and all of a sudden your hip has hurt because you have to overcompensate for what you don't have. And then we are looking for love and also don't know how to absorb it. Yeah. You know, because of the shame that's still hidden in our bodies and all the things that are happening, we don't know how to actually be loved. Yeah. You know, and that's why out of a 45-minute session, two minutes might be the deeper therapy. Yeah, right. Yeah. At, right. Right. Yeah, because people have a yeah, hard time I, really know. getting it. Yeah, you know, you bring up a really good point. I mean, I, I've, I've never thought to, like, actually even educate patients about this. But as you're saying it, I'm thinking, wow, that would be a good thing to actually teach patients. Mm. To actually say, look, we're going to have 45-minute sessions. And it's important to know that there may be only a short period of time in each of those sessions mm -hmm. where you find something meaningful happen. 
And it's important to know that part of why that is is because like there's a lot about the insecure attachment pattern that we're having mm-hmm. to wade through and mm-hmm. like uncouple and detangle right. and right. so forth to get to that space where you really feel felt and have your have an experience of being seen and heard. Absolutely. Yeah. And even even with that, Kurt, when I teach people about this, you know, you, you can have unresolved attachment and, and can get to secure attachment, right? And we call it earned. Even mm-hmm. that word is triggering for people. Right. Oh, my gosh. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so I <laughs> right. say learn. Like, we're going to learn together. We're going to learn how to mm-hmm. have secure, unresolved attachment. And yeah. because the worst is, tr- even that, people can automatically feel like they got to be performative. They've got to be... They've got to be the, the the leading ruler, the the prince with all the money, the person that does it the best. Yeah. 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 Shame is uh, always at the ready. That's a great way of putting it. It is. It's already suited up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You wake up in the morning, and my shame attendant is all dressed. He's had his shower, and he's ready to go. Absolutely. Right. Tapping. Kurt, you're late. Yeah. It's like it's five o'clock in the morning. Why are you still sleeping? Get up. <laughs> <laughs> it's true yes. and I think that's part of it too and a lot of what you write in your book about is is that shame shame hides and yeah. one thing in your book said it said sin hunts on us on the plane of our toxic shame hmm. can you elaborate yeah. on that because I assume that goes into the shame hiding within us and, and all that My sense is that, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a theologian or a biblical scholar by training. And so there may be others who would quibble with this. I'm just aware that when we read the texts, that first of all, explicitly, there are any number of places where anytime sin is talked about or people confess their sin or talk about their own sin, mm. that shame is all is often part of that conversation. When you read the Psalms, mm. right, David and other writers often couple the notion of sin and shame. And my sense is uh, that there are very few places where sin exists, whether it be an act or it be a condition, in which the affective state that accompanies that is not shame in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. It can be many other things mm-hmm. in addition to that. But I don't know that we ever talk about sin as an abstract thing or a, a, a real, but, you know, as an abstract thing and, and not talk about shame as the emotional payload that represents mm-hmm. that yeah, along good way the way. Mm-hmm. And, 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 of course, um, it it doesn't mean I, I want to be very clear and say even like from a theological perspective I'm not equating shame with sin I'm not equating those two things I'm simply saying that when we sense it image it feel it think it have awareness of it in our bodies that you know as Paul writes in Second Corinthians seven there is a grief there is a godly grief that leads to repentance, and there is an ungodly grief that leads to death. Mm. And I think it's not too difficult, even though in the Greek, I don't think that, you know, he's not he's not using words that can be interchanged with shame, but I think it's not too difficult to interchange shame with grief in that sense, that there is mm. a godly shame that we can sense mm-hmm. that can lead to repentance. And I would say that shame is 
this thing that God has built in, has made available in the universe that when we sense it, the question is, what do I do in response to it? Mm. And sometimes repentance is not just from the thing that I did for which I am rightly, I rightly should be ashamed, but sometimes the repentance is repenting, repenting from continuing to live in that cycle of shame. Mm-hmm. And so, Again, this is where, you know, data on research data on shame and guilt is is helpful, I think, because we see that, you know, uh, shame is something that is experienced neurodevelopmentally at much younger ages, 15 to 18 months of age. Guilt doesn't show up until we're about three to five years of age, maybe even older than that, in terms of like what a kid experiences that we call guilt. Right. And is also deeply connected to a kid's capacity to be aware that there are other relationships in the world that matter to them and that they matter to that relationship and so forth. And so when multiple research studies have have demonstrated that when children or or, or college students, when they sense the thing that we call guilt in response to a thing that they've done that's disrupted a relationship that is important to them, Mm -hmm. with guilt, one of the first things that those people will do is they will move toward the relationship in order to repair it. Yeah. Yeah. With shame, we don't move toward people at all. Right. We I turn away from them, yeah. which is why when it comes to that, we still need, and why with sin, like we, like one of the reasons we can't take care of this on our own is because I'm going to turn away from you yeah. in my sin, in, in, mm-hmm. in my shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need a God who will come to find us. Absolutely. That's so well put and just beautiful. And the idea of you know rupture and repair, and then when the shame is there, Shame will convince us that we are whatever just happened to us or whatever we just did. And so you go away from people instead of towards them. And the, the healing is being with someone else. It's the power of therapy. It's the power of 12-step programs and being in a, a good church community or some community where you are allowed to expose the things that caused you to cover up. Right. Yeah. Where people absolutely. will come to find me. Yeah. I, I love the same when people will come to find me. Are you writing a book on that? That statement. Well, I, I am. Like that? I, the, I'm just. I'm. I just uh, wrapped up a manuscript that uh, for a book that's going to be hopefully coming out in the uh, probably the later part of next summer. That mm. uh, really focuses on the, uh, the 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 big pillar is one of beauty, and that we what are we, what are we called to create as mm. opposed to so asking patience even what the question what do you what do you sense that you want to create and make as opposed to mm. what's the problem that we need to solve. Right. Yeah, that's good. And those are important from a neurobiological perspective because of the dominance of the left versus the right hemispheres experience. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is this notion that we're called to be known in order for us to create and mm. that beauty becomes the thing that God is using to save the world that is outside the bounds of language per se, that is outside the bounds of like, well, here's the problem. Here's how we're going to fix it. Wow. And, um, I'm, I'm going to be talking about this uh, in the context of three things. We're going to, the, the vehicle is, is really the work that we're doing in these confessional communities. We're going to talk an awful lot about that. Um, we're going to talk an awful lot about and, and refer to a, a lot of artwork that, yeah. um, that I think invites us to consider this beauty that we're being called to become in order as well as create. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to use the fourth verse of the 27th Psalm as the kind of grounding text in particular for the last half of the book uh, as a way to explore this question of what does it mean for us to dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of our life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire mm. in his temple. 
Mm. And how those three things, to dwell, to gaze, and inquire, sets us on a path of regeneration, mm. even with people uh, with whom we have great difference. Yeah, the beauty of that, just I can hear the the secure attachment to God. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, to, to, be in, to be a part of all that, to be in ventral vagal, to be in a place of safety and connection. You know, and the healing that happens when we're there. Yeah, and that you're setting that up. Yeah. So just curious, just to segue for a second, what was your attachment style to each of your parents when you were growing up? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I probably had uh, shades of a more avoidant attachment with my dad mm-hmm. and shades of a more anxious attachment with my mom. Gotcha. And that still to this day has its fingerprints mm. on my life in, mm. you know, I'm 58 years old and I am still trying to work stuff out. Yeah. Um, and, and I can say, uh, you know, these, and, and they were both God followers. They were, they were, they were Christians, uh, mm. who loved me well. And I mean, as I tell parents, you know, the only way you're not going to screw up your kids is just don't have them. That's the absolutely you guarantee yes. not doing that. Yes. And, so I'm, I'm, I'm supremely grateful to my parents for so, so many different things. And I have things that I'm having to work out that I wish that had been different mm-hmm. uh, that have me having to work through things that I'm disappointed about, that I'm angry about, that I'm sad about, uh, where a lot of my shame has dwelt, as yep. it turns out, yep. over Absolutely. the course of my lifetime. And I think that, you know, the, the real key for me in the course of my life has been uh, you know, the, the number of different communities, I've got a couple of guys, I've got a handful of people in a covenant. We have a covenant group that in our, from our church that we've been with now for nearly 30 years. I've got a couple of guys every Tuesday morning that I meet with for mm. confession and prayer. I've got a spiritual director, you know, it takes a village for Kurt. It, it really does. Yeah. I, mean, to, right. I hear that. It does for all and of us. In those, great. I think in those settings, uh, it, it has, I mean, God has made himself known and present to me and allowed me to be known by being known to these beautiful people that, uh, without whom I'd be a dead man. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you're alive and fully alive and resurrected and sharing your wisdom with us and the audience. Thoroughly enjoyed this. I could talk to you for hours. So thank you for taking time to be a part of Flip Your Lid. And so that all of you that got to hear this, I really hope you heard something that allowed you to flip your lid and then reconnect to be who God says that you are. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Please subscribe, rate, and share. You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram at KB Honeycutt. To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit butyourmotherlovesyou.com. Remember, no matter what, treat yourself well today. <laughs>